back to that verse that you have in the bulletin for today. I selected that on purpose. Kind of interesting that Paul is actually talking about the subject of the Lord's table back in chapter 10 as well as in chapter 11. And I have really read to you this morning kind of the premier passage that we have in the New Testament. Of course, you can go to the Gospels. You can find stories of how when Jesus instituted the Lord's table. But when you come to a, a, a classic New Testament passage that is directing us, admonishing us, telling us how we should observe the Lord's table, you have heard that read in your hearing this morning from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. But Paul is talking about it all the way back in chapter 10. So if you look in chapter 10, verse 16, I simply want to call your attention to the fact, once again, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And as I said in the opening part of the service, if you look at this, the word blessing reminds us, and then the word communion reminds us when we put these things together, that God truly seeks to bless us as we gather around the Lord's table. There is a unique opportunity to fellowship with each other and with him. Not that we can't do that other ways and at other times, but there is a unique opportunity to do this and that this is something he has instituted and commanded of us and invested it with special symbolic significance to draw us close to himself centered around the sacrifice that he made on the cross of Calvary. One of the things, though, that has concerned me, and I know that you have picked this up over the years, and you've probably watched as I've sort of adjusted as God has spoken my heart to do more things to address this problem. Since God wants us to enjoy this, since God wants to bless us through this, I feel that we too often miss it by rushing it, by tacking it on to the end of a service. In fact, I'm not so sure there, there are many ministers who don't just sort of regard a monthly observance of the Lord's table as something of an annoyance. Um, that sounds maybe a little strange, but when you think about it, here's a, here's a pastor, he's going along with his series, and then, ah, we have the Lord's table today. What are we supposed to do? Well, it wouldn't hurt if we just stopped. No reason why we can't do that, right? I have found many times my message in my series fits right in, but I found other times that that's not the case. And if you're not really thinking about that, it's easy just to sort of rush right through things. You come to it in the last 10 minutes of the service. You have to try to get it over with in a hurry and get the service completed. And I think that's not good practice. I have tried to move us away from that. But you know, worse yet, you can even have situations like what occurs here in the church at Corinth where because of certain things that they were doing, they actually incurred the Lord's displeasure. I mean, you have a very strong statement of that in verse number 30, where it says, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. In other words, the chastening hand of the Lord had actually come upon these people because they were not observing the Lord's table in the way that God intended them to do. And God was expressing his um, displeasure with that by visiting upon them even physically the repercussions of what they were doing wrong and so this morning I want to bring you a message that's entitled observing with blessing because we don't want to be like Corinth do we do we don't want to observe and have it result in the Lord's displeasure but instead we want to observe and know that we capitalize on that great blessing that God really wants to give to us through our time around the Lord's table. So as I read down through this passage, I find three things, three things that God wants us to keep in mind. I'm not necessarily sure this is exhaustive. I do, as I say earlier, reiterate that this is sort of the classic passage in the New Testament. So 
If we're going to find, again, learning by negative example, we certainly find it in the church at Corinth. And I would like to frame this to you in positive terms, though. So what is the first of these characteristics? What are the first of these things that we need to know about and that we need to observe and be sure that we are observing corporately as well as individually with one another and uh, to have God's blessing when we, we come to these times around the Lord's table? And the first of them is unity. I think that you find that in verses 17 through 19. Well, truly much is said about the subject of unity in today's world. There are people who desire ecumenical unity, and sometimes the price of that is too high. Sometimes the price of that is doctrine, and perhaps that is unity that we really should not be interested in because once we violate the principles and truths of God's word, we have expressed our disloyalty to him. That would not be the type of unity that God is well pleased with. But certainly, if there is anything that observing the Lord's table, if there is anything that these elements are meant to emphasize, it is unity. It is the unity of brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. If you look back, as I said, chapter 10 has a lot to say about this, and I want to show you a verse that comes right there before the verse that was, uh, or right there in conjunction with the verse that we chose for the bulletin today. Chapter 10, verse 17, look at this. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. You see the word one? Do you see how he uses the example of a loaf to point out that though you might have a number of slices, it's all one loaf? He talks about the body. That's an illustration that we know that he develops later on in chapter number 12. One body, one body in Christ. And we have fingers, and we have fingernails, and we have arms, and we have legs. We have different members with varying gifts and varying backgrounds, but it's all one body. And look at that verse 17 again. For we being many are one bread. And he's talking about the fact that the bread symbolizes that unity that we are supposed to have in Jesus Christ. He goes on in the verse, for we are all partakers of that one bread. But when you look at what was going on in the church at Corinth in these first couple of verses, they were expressing anything but unity because the church was characterized with disunity and the church was characterized with division. And we see him referring to this in verse number 18. First of all, he says, when ye come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you. And he says, I partly believe it. Well, we certainly know it's true, right? Because the Corinthian letter hardly gets started than Paul is talking to them about those schisms. He's talking to them about those divisions that existed in the church. If we go back for a moment to chapter number 1, verse 10, he gets into it right away. And in verse number 10, he says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. He says, For it then declared unto me, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And do you remember what these were? I mean, these things kind of go in all kinds of varieties. But in the Corinthian church, do you remember what he is talking about here and what he sort of brings to the fore? Was a party spirit. You had people who had their favorites. And I think it's always true that people will have their favorites. It's not necessarily wrong to have an affinity to a particular uh, person and to enjoy that person, perhaps because they click with you maybe a little bit better. But when we do that in such a way that we bring disharmony in the church, that's unbiblical and that's wrong and that's ungodly. 
he says to them there, you have people who say, I am of Paul. He says, you have other people who say, I am of Apollos. You have other people who say, I am of Cephas. And then you had the really pious crew who said, I am of Christ. Well, here are four people, four groups in the church that were exhibiting this party spirit. And beloved, this is totally opposite of what God wants us to be when he calls us one body and one loaf. It's totally opposite of what these elements are designed to represent. So first of all, they had a party spirit in the church. He calls that carnality. Did you know that? If you really want to know what the Apostle Paul thinks about this, then you come to chapter number three, and he says, here's what I tell you about this. It's, it really just reveals your carnality. Because you haven't stopped to realize that these people are all God's servants. These people are all, we're, we are God's husbandry. It's like the field, and it's God's field. And so he sends Apollos and, pa, and Apollos waters. He sends Paul and Paul plants. And one person waters and another sows, but God gives the increase. And he says this in verse number three. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Brings it up again. For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? And he goes down and he talks about this. He said, so you've magnified these Christian leaders. They are Christian leaders, but he said, you've magnified them to the point that you're following them to the exclusion of Christ. And not only so, you've magnified them to the exclusion of other Christian leaders to the point that now you've got this disharmony and this party spirit in the church. Well, that's that. Then you come to where we are now and you've got something almost a little bit worse. So go back to chapter 11. Because not only did they have a party spirit in that church, but they had something going on with social differences, social distinctions. I'm, I'm telling you something, beloved. All those things should stop at the door. Where am I coming from with this, and where do we see this in the text? Well, look at verse number uh, 21, where he points this out. 1 Corinthians 11:21. he says, for in eating, everyone taketh before other his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Well, what's going on here? What's going on here is pretty clear, really, if you read the chapter and you just absorb what it's talking about. They had social differences in their church. They had economic differences in their church. They had people who didn't have a lot. And they had people who had a lot. You know what that tends to do sometimes? We can become cliquish. We can decide that, well, you know, those are the kinds of people that I re really relate to. And so we kind of spend our time with them and we don't really socialize with the other people because maybe they don't dress quite as well as we do. You know, this is all what comes along with it. Come on, just think about it. You know this is true. When a church has people in it who have less and when a church has people in it who have more. This is the kind of thing that can happen. This is the very kind of thing that James was inveighing about in his epistle when he talked about the rich people and the poor people. And beloved, all of those differences should be buried at the cross. That has nothing to do with who we are as Christian people. Somebody who has less and somebody who's able to, not able to drive as good a car or maybe even doesn't have a car or somebody who doesn't have the ability to have as nice a clothes as you, that all ought to just stop at the door. That person ought to be as welcome in your house, 
When you consider hospitality, when you consider inviting people over, when you consider whom you will sit with at the activity center at a meal, when you consider whom you will sit by in church, all that stuff ought to go away. It doesn't have any place in a Christian church. But all too often, it most certainly does, and that truly is a shame. Beloved, what is our takeaway from this? There is more that we can get just simply by thinking about this problem, and it's basically this, that any disruption of fellowship between believers, whether it's over a party spirit or whether it's over a social distinction or whether it's over something else, any disruption of the fellowship between believers in the body of Christ and in our corporate worship is a breach of the decorum and meaning of the Lord's table. I wonder if we've thought about that very much. Now here we've come, and maybe you didn't even remember it was the first Sunday. Or maybe you didn't even think about the fact that, but you know what, now it's confronted us, hasn't it? You're here in a worship service, and we're going to, we're going to gather around the Lord's table. And not only am I a little convicted to make sure that I don't have any of that party spirit, and I'm not observing those kinds of social distinctions, but my spirit is tender to the fact that this represents one loaf. It represents one body. It represents the very unity that Christ died to make possible in the body of Christ. And now I have to be sensitive to whether or not that unity is really there. Has it been disrupted by something? Is my fellowship with people right? Are my thoughts towards people right? Am I right with people here today? What about asking ourselves that question? Am I right with people here today? What about at home? Am I right with people at home? You know, it's hard to be a Christian at home. Did you ever figure that out? It's a whole lot easier to come in here on Sunday morning with, you know, our nice clothes and our nice smile and all of that, and, and people know us the way they see us in church and all that kind of thing, but when you go home, oh, that's a different matter now. Those are the people you live with all the time. Those are the people that, that can get under your skin sometimes, right? Am I right with people at home? Have I spoken unkind words? Have I been harsh? Have I been impatient? I tell you, there's one thing I apologize to my wife more than anything else for. It's just sometimes I'm a little, I'm a little short. Do you have that problem sometimes? And I feel so bad when I do that. I feel so bad when I can see in her face that I've hurt her. Just because maybe I haven't had the greatest day or just because a lot of things are bothering me and I'm just a little short. That really bothers me. I'll tell you, when that kind of thing happens, I make haste to apologize because I don't want that. I can't handle that. What about at work? What about at school? There's all kinds of places, beloved. And people know we're supposed to be Christians, and people are supposed to know that we're supposed to love one another, and people know that we're supposed to get along. Well, we can't talk here forever. Let's talk about the second thought. Now, I've chosen a word to use here that it, it, it maybe you're going to think, man, has he really gone soft-headed? But the word that I'm using is sensitivity. And I find this thought developed in verses 20 through 26 as well as in verse 33 and 34. I think somehow we may have that a little skewed there. It's okay. I'm telling you it's verses 20 to 26 and 33 to 34. 
Why do I say that about the word sensitivity? Well, just because I think we've been hammered over the head with that one so much that it kind of doesn't make a lot of sense to us anymore. You know, if you want to look at what's close at hand, just to give an illustration, and I have to kind of be careful with this, but in April, so only several months ago now, over in Philadelphia, there was a problem in a Starbucks restaurant. Do you remember the story in the news? Headlines all over the place for a couple of days. It was a five-cent story, but it got $5 coverage because it's the very kind of stuff that the media loves to stick up there and well it was unfortunate I mean that's the best thing you can say about it it was truly unfortunate that you had two people of color they had gone into the Starbucks ref restaurant in Philly they said that they were there to meet someone else but they were there for a while and they didn't buy anything they weren't customers and so it got to the place where for whatever reason the store manager felt that uh, they needed to be asked to leave apparently they didn't readily do that the police were called now you have this huge big story about how the police were called and escorted these people of color out of Starbucks restaurant. Well, if you know anything about Howard Schultz and you know anything about Starbucks, don't be surprised if Howard Schultz runs for president. He's resigned as the CEO of Starbucks and that's exactly what he has in mind, to become a democratic darling. He's an outspoken social activist, but he's resigned now, so there's another fellow. And so they feel, how are we gonna, how are we gonna uh, atone for this? How are we gonna reclaim Starbucks now tarnished image because everybody sort of knows us as a, in the vanguard of this movement to have uh, sensitivity and, and social activism and all this kind of stuff. And so they shut the whole 8,000 stores, 8,000 stores down for one day to have sensitivity training. Well, when, uh, when the purpose of the sensitivity training is to address what they call unbiased or unconscious bias training. See, you see how that works? If it's unconscious, you don't even know you have it. Hello? If it's unconscious, you don't even know you have it. So where you sit right now, you're probably prejudiced. I've I got to stop with this. But they had the whole place, 8,000 stores, closed for a day for the sensitivity training. It's kind of interesting what's developed in the aftermath of this, that now Starbucks realizes that perhaps they went too far with some of this because they changed their policies to let people hang out. Now you can hang out. You can use the restroom. doesn't matter whether you're com coming there to buy anything or not. Now they've kind of realized, well, we just sent an invitation to anybody, homeless or otherwise. Maybe they'll sleep here. Maybe they'll do drugs or alcohol here. They have to kind of come out and clarify that now that this enhanced policy of acceptance for all means that you still doesn't mean that you can come there to sleep or do drugs or alcohol. That won't be tolerated. So I get it. Using the word sensitivity, maybe sometimes we've, we've had a, maybe too much of that sometimes. Maybe we've kind of had our fill of that. There's a point of good to it, and then there's a point where and it's in the military, and it's all over the place. All you have to do is just do some research, and you'll see that that's true. And yet, really, that was the exact problem in Corinth. A lack of sensitivity as they observed the Lord's table. Why is this so? Because, you know, think about this. I think it'll really help you understand the passage if you just kind of remember a couple things. When Jesus instituted the Lord's table, what were they observing? Does anybody know? The Passover... It's the next word. Meal. 
the Passover meal, right? They, that's what they were doing. They were observing the Passover meal. And Jesus instituted the Lord's table through the course of that meal. So the Lord's table in the early church was always associated with a meal. It's just that as time went on, they sort of made the distinction between the two. They didn't incorporate the, the taking of the Lord's table with the meal. The meal was called the agape. You know what that is? The love feast. That was what the meal was called. Then they would have what technically in the early church came to be called the Eucharist. And I know that we don't like that because it sounds maybe a little bit uh, too much like uh, some, some churches that are a little bit too ritualistic for us. But it, in Greek, it simply means thanksgiving. And so it's really not a bad word. It's just that we haven't been accustomed to using that word. But they would distinguish between the two. If they were going to have the agape, it was first. And then they would have the Eucharist, or they would have their time around the Lord's table. And so what was happening in Corinth was the agape means what? Love, love feast. They were not showing love in Corinth because they had these social distinctions in the church. And they had people who didn't have a lot. And a brother or sister would come to this meal not having very much at all. And then there would be other people who would come and they just had a backpack full of food. And you had some people who were coming and they were hungry and so they started gorging themselves and you had other people who came and had very little and they came later. And you had people, the end result of all this is, you had people who were shamed. You had people who were made to feel ashamed because they were poor because they didn't have much instead of having that true christian spirit where people would come and have plenty so they could share with other people that they knew full well in the church didn't have very much at all instead of doing that you had this practice going on in the church that showed unbelievable insensitivity this is what Paul is talking about. Look at verse number 21 that we read that earlier, but look at it again now that you've seen this explanation. For in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and, ev and one is hungry and another is drunken. Yeah, these people with all kinds of food, they were in good shape. And you had other people that didn't have a lot, they were hungry. And do you think for a moment, put yourself in that situation. If you're coming to church and you don't have very much, you're already embarrassed, you already feel bad about that, then you come and you go to participate over like we do at a meal over in the activity summer and you don't, you don't have anything. And people say, you have the chicken barbecue here this week. Sign up for it. Family name and number. Everybody's welcome. Well, what happened if we have somebody in our church didn't have enough to bring anything? Would they still be welcome? Huh? Would they? Yeah, they would. They really would. And I, I don't really know that I've ever seen this church default in something like that. But I just know how somebody like that would feel. I've known people to stay away because they just felt they didn't have anything to bring. Beloved, I remember one time we had rain. Now, they're not talking about it for this week. It's raining sun down. That's what it's doing. But I remember we had a time over here, and we had, I don't know, 15, 20 people. John McCracken will tell you. We had 15, 20 people at least, more than what signed up. They were coming in there. We were afraid we were going to run out of chicken, and I saw... I won't say their names. I saw people who weren't taking any. I saw people who just didn't take any chicken to be sure those people who came in late had some. They weren't signed up. They just kind of poured in. 
It's always that conundrum. What do you do? You, you go to your sign-up sheet. You say, well, we're going to prepare for 125. What do you do if you have 140? What do you do if you have 150? Well, if you went up there on the first wait time through and just pigged out, just loaded your plate, or even brought in one of these special trays that you could really load up and took two or three of everything on the first time through, well, maybe you shouldn't do that. Maybe you should just take one the first time through. Get enough to make yourself satisfied. But, beloved, sometimes, you know, it's, we always have a lot, so you can always go back for seconds. I mean, if you're hungry at the end, it's better to be sure that people are taken care of, isn't it? And this is what they had at Corinth. That is so unloving. And he gets to the place where he tells them, you know, you're violating exactly what the, these elements are meant to symbolize because he tells them now in verses 23 to 25, read these verses now that you hear so often in this context and see what you get. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, what? Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. After the same manner also he took the cup. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And I'm importing language from another verse. So his body is broken, his blood is shed in order that we might have the benefit of salvation. Is there a more potent example of a selfless spirit of putting other people first as it says in Mark 10 the son of man came not to minister but to minister unto and to give his life a ransom for many is there a greater example of the kind of love that motivates us to be selfless but what they were in Corinth was selfish And we can't be really right about our observance of the Lord's table if we aren't sensitive. You could take another word in the practical outworking of this and call it compassion. That's what I preached about last week. Who was neighbor? The guy that showed compassion. Paul picks up on this very thought in another place in the Bible when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Here's how Christians ought to think. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto the death, the cross, even the death of the cross. That's the example that Jesus is giving us in this reminder so if we're selfish towards one another instead of selfless towards one another, that's not the way to observe the Lord's table. And here's the last one because we're running a little bit low on time. I've chosen here the word reverence. This is actually where you have those verses there, 27 to 32. By their disunity and insensitivity, the Corinthians had brought the chastening, God's chastening hand upon themselves. The problem was a lack of reverence and respect for both Christ and each other. Verse 27, whoever, wherefore, whoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily. See, you have to notice that it's an adverb. <clears throat> he doesn't say unworthy because we're all unworthy. But if we're not observing unity, if we're not observing sensitivity, if we're not observing reverence as we come to the Lord's table, if those things don't characterize our life and practice, 
then we're not coming out of true respect for what the practice and the elements and the symbolism of the Lord's table is all about. By the way, beloved, I I don't really have time to get into a a fist fight over this because that would be kind of the opposite. But really, once you begin to see this passage, this is not so much what sometimes people have read into it that he's telling us you can't eat in the church. Now, I'll just tell you this. I'm not for bringing food into the sanctuary. I'll just tell you that right now. And we have always tried to avoid that because we have felt that it helps us maintain the decorum that we want here in a place where we worship, and it has helped us to, to, to maintain the furniture and other things in here in a way that we respect it and give glory to God and don't damage it by spilling all kinds of things. But this verse is not teaching us that you can't eat in the church. This verse is not teaching us that you kind of have to go out the door or you couldn't go downstairs, or you couldn't go to somewhere else in the church. That's not what this is talking about. This verse is talking about these problems that we're talking about this morning. That's never really been a problem here. I just know that sometimes there have been those that have been worried that that's what the passage is saying. It's really not what the passage is saying. But Paul says if you do this, verse 29, if you eat and drink unworthily, you eat and drink, this, this really gives us pause too because the King James Version says damnation when in reality it's the word judgment uh, and so we're not really thinking of hellfire, that's not what it's talking about, not discerning the Lord's body, that is not showing respect for what this is all about. And he says, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you. And he continues verse 32, but when we are judged we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. Show that sensitivity. If, if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that you may know. Come together, un, not, not come together unto condemnation. And he says, the rest I will set in order when I come. What was needed was a simple examination. This is why we generally pause for a few moments. We ask people to bow their heads, close their eyes. While the deacons distribute the elements and the instruments play, we have time to do exactly what verse 28 says, to examine ourselves. Then, when we have made peace with God over anything that he has brought to our hearts that's not right, to the best of our ability, we know that we are reverently, observing the Lord's table, then we observe and then we find that blessing. What was needed was simple self-examination and honesty, which might have forced the Corinthian church into a little fence mending with one another. Isn't this what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother and then come offer thy gift. Unity. What's disrupted my fellowship with another Christian brother? It might have forced the Corinthians into a little fence mending. It might have forced them into a little compassion. Compassion. 